Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. A couple quick things before we jump into this evening's text. Um, I, I want to stop. One of the things I'm terrible at is, uh, is remembering to be thankful uh, or, or just uh, being thankful, uh, let's start at the beginning here, uh, and celebrating. And those are tied together because they, both of those things uh, are backwards-facing things, and I don't do a lot of backwards-facing in my life, which is uh, to my shame and to my detriment uh, because the, uh, over and over and over in the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God tells the, us to remember and I'm not, I don't do a great job of remembering, and so I want to pause here at the end of this little soft launch season um, and remember how much work you all have put into what Icon uh, is and is becoming. And so I want to first thank you guys for all of the time and all of the energy and all of the everything um, that so many of you have given to what we're doing. Um, I, I've said this a number of times to people off stage, so I want to say it on stage as well. Um, if, if we didn't do anything else together uh, for, for the rest of our lives, this all came to an end for whatever tragic reason, I would be so glad for the time I've had with you guys. We just have such a great crew of people um, that I've just enjoyed being with you guys. So I hope it doesn't come to a tragic end sometime in the next two weeks, to be clear. Uh, but if it did, you know, I, I'm, I remain thankful and, and excited for uh, some new friendships and uh, just the time we've had. So thank you, and, and I don't want us to forget uh, how much fun this season has been. It, it has exceeded our expectations in a number of ways. Uh, we didn't think we would be in a building uh, until September. So uh, the fact that we grew out of my admittedly small living room uh, more quickly than I expected uh, has been a blessing, and, and so I'm, I'm real thankful for that. Um, as we turn our attention to our launch, um, this has felt a little bit like ramping up to a wedding. And I, I've only been involved with one wedding personally, um, but I have been a pastor at, a num at lots and lots of weddings. And one of the pieces of advice I always give people is, remember, like, the wedding's fun and it's important and all of your energy in the, like, six months prior is going towards the wedding and it's going to be a blast. But at the end of the day, if this wedding doesn't become a marriage, it was all a waste of time, okay? And so that usually... The bride looks a little crestfallen after I say that, but you know, like it's, I feel a duty to, to make sure that we all know the, it's a party and it's a good party, but it's just the beginning, not the end of the process. And so I am looking forward to this launch and all the things that we get to do in the next couple of weeks. Um, but if, if it's not all aiming towards a church that, that can serve this community, be a light for the gospel, and, and contribute to God's kingdom here in Capitol Hill, uh, man, it'll be fun, but it will be for naught, okay? So um, I, I want us to have that vision as we go into this, which is why the 24-7 prayer piece is such a big deal to me. Um, we've got a lot of fun events. The, the party next week or next, yeah, next Sunday is going to be really fun, free tacos. I, I say nothing else uh, and need to say nothing else. Uh, that's going to be great. Uh, having Rebecca McLaughlin out is going to be fantastic. If you're not familiar with her book, it is uh, really one of the best books I have read this year, maybe the best book I've read this year. She is brilliant, uh, and it's going to be a great time. Um, but if, if we don't pray, 
um, and the spirit doesn't move, uh, all of our planning and all of our strategy and all of our everything is, is, uh, is again, for naught. Uh, if the spirit doesn't move. So we have only like five slots left. Uh, and I know one of them is at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then there's a bunch of afternoon slots, like one, two, three, four in the afternoon, something like that. So uh, we, one night owl and a bunch of people who can take a break in the afternoon, grab a coffee and 15 minutes of prayer uh, and, and we're covered. So uh, really, really encourage you all to do that because it's, it's the thing that's gonna be the engine that makes this thing go, okay? So that's the first thing. Um, Billy Graham is quoted as saying, and I don't know if it was actually, if he actually said this or not, and I honestly don't care. But uh, he said, uh, as they were preparing for their crusades, they don't call them crusades anymore because that doesn't work, but uh, they're, they're, they would, he would tell his people, pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to you. And, and I, I don't know if that's exactly biblical, but I like it. And, and it makes sense to me at, a, at like a gut level that we would work hard and we would make our plans and get stuff done and then we would pray like it's all up to God, which we know that it is. So um, I'm looking forward to having a church with you all uh, come September 8th. So let's do that, okay? One of the things that we've said over and over and has become kind of our mission statement here at ICON, is that we're committed to the king, the kingdom, and the common good, right? And we, the way we say it is we're committed to loving the king, seeking the kingdom, and serving the common good here in Seattle. And uh, the passage we're looking at tonight in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, for those of you who've been tracking with us, you may have noticed that we skipped it when it was kind of in its chronological time. Uh, and I've been kind of saving this passage uh, for tonight because it, it really encapsulates those three ideas in a way that I think um, kind of tie a nice bow on this soft launch season and then can propel us into uh, our church life together. So, um, I want us to start in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 23, uh, and we're going to go through uh, chapter 11, verse 1. But I, I want to, I'm going to skip around in this passage a little bit um, to kind of highlight those three ideas. That what does it mean uh, for us to love the king, to seek the kingdom, and to serve the common good here in Seattle? So um, actually, I want you to skip down to verse 31. We're going to start in verse 31. Paul sums up this whole section, and if you can remember back, um, he was dealing with cultural issues, and one of, those, one of those cultural issues we'll talk about briefly here tonight, but basically decisions about how Christians are to interact with uh, non-Christian culture. And this is so wildly important for us because literally every single day, we make decisions and try to figure out how to navigate an ever-changing world that is not a Christian world. It never has been, but we felt like it was for a while, but now it's becoming obviously not Christian, and we're trying to navigate our way through that. And so a significant portion of 1 Corinthians is dedicated to navigating through very specific issues that the Corinthians were dealing with there, and he's going to sum it all up in this one phrase, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So they, they've been talking about food sacrifice to idols and can they eat it and can they drink this and can they, what, where should they be and where can they go and what kind of relationships should they have. And Paul goes, listen, I'm gonna sum it all up for you. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And 
I, I, I love the, uh, the kind of the finality of that idea. I love the, the big picture theme of that idea. What I don't love about this is the, the phrase glory to God or glorifying God is always been kind of a problematic phrase for me. I, I grew up in church. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. And, uh, and I'm very thankful to have a kind of boring testimony, basically. Um, my rebellion was one semester in college where I thought I might not be a pastor. And I was like, ugh. And so I, I, I'm thankful for that. I hope my kids have very boring testimonies as well. Uh, but... This, there's so, so when you grow up in the church, there's phrases that people say all the time, and, and there are moments, I hope, for most of us, and I, I hope to create some of those moments for you, where there's a phrase that you say or you hear a bunch, and then one time you hear it or see it, and it just seems different, or it, it kind of rings maybe a little hollow, and this phrase, glorifying God, rings hollow to me or seems weird to me, and for two reasons. One... There is almost no example in the real world where the idea of getting glory or glorifying someone is a positive thing, right? Like, usually we'll use that phrase to say, oh, that guy just wants all the glory, right? And so in sports, it's the guy who's playing for the name on the back of his jersey, not the front of his jersey, right? Like, in, in, in there's this uh, kind of romantic, idealized warrior who's living for his own glory, he wants to defeat all the enemies to, to get glory over them. And even in the scriptures, in fact, in, uh, in Exodus, when uh, God is freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God says over and over that he's going to free his people and in the process get glory over Pharaoh. And it always just, because of all that, just seems kind of weird to me and I don't, haven't totally understood it. And then uh, the other part of it that bugs me, and this is kind of a thing that I have in a lot of ways, is it just, it's, it's just churchy. And, and there's, there's these kinds of churchy phrases that I think we say and don't totally know what they mean or what we even mean by them. So we go, well, you know, we want to glorify God. And I, every time I hear someone say that, I want to stop them and go, okay, but like, do you, what, like, what is that? Like, what do you mean by that? When you use that phrase, what is the actual action that you're thinking d- does that thing, that glorifying God thing? And so uh, I, I, you know, I can't just be annoyed by things in the Bible and be like, well, that annoys me, and so I'm going to move on. Like, I'm a pastor, i got to deal with stuff. And so started thinking more about this and, and getting kind of more deeply into it. And there was one metaphor that I read that was super helpful to me to better understand what this means. And, and that is that to glorify something or to give glory to a thing is essentially to reveal its truest character. To make known the fullness of what something is. Okay, so then to glorify God is to speak and act in such a way so as to describe God's truest or fullest self. Like it it pulls back the curtain to glorify someone is to kind of pull back the curtain and go, that is what they most truly are. And that started to make sense to me. Right, so when God defeats Pharaoh... 
and, and frees Israel from slavery, God was in that moment revealing his superiority over Pharaoh. Because uh, in, in ancient Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was God. Pharaoh was divine. And so the fact that Pharaoh had enslaved the people of Israel was a de facto, uh, Pharaoh was more powerful than the God of Israel. And so the God of Israel said, well, that ain't true. And so when I defeat Pharaoh, I will reveal the truth of the situation, which is that I am far stronger and more superior than Pharaoh. Okay, so it's a, it's, it's a revealing, right? So I started thinking about this in, in other terms and why has um, glory become kind of a negative thing for humans but is okay for God. And I realized this. When we glorify God, everyone benefits. When we glorify God, when we reveal the truest things about God, the fullest truth about God, everyone benefits from that moment. Okay, so we reveal his character, his love and his patience, his grace, his mercy, his hope, uh, God's ethics, his justice. By imaging him, by, by reflecting who he is, we reveal the truth about who he is. And all of the things about who he is are good things, right? And so when we image God, when we glorify God, we, we kind of pull back the curtain. And so that any misconceptions about God are done away with and people can see God for who God actually is. Now, more than that, we also believe, Christians believe, that knowing God, and in fact loving God, is our, and the Greek word is telos. It is the purpose for which we were made, right? When we were created in God's image, God created us to be in a loving relationship with him. That is our kind of highest purpose. It's why Jesus in Matthew 28, when asked what the greatest commandment is, his response is not obey everything. It's not be perfect. It's not, it's love. That what we are made for is to know and love God. That is the point for which we were made. Therefore, follow this logic with me. No, if knowing and loving God is our telos, the, the point for which we were made, then knowing and loving God is also, too, the great hope of the world. That if every single person knew and loved God, that this is all of their highest ends. Whether they believe that or not, that's what they were created for. The claim of the gospel is not a claim of opinion. It is a claim of universal truth. The claim of the gospel is that all women and all men were made for this purpose. And so... To the degree that we can reveal who God is, we demonstrate all of the most winsome and loving and glorious things about him that God would then use to woo people, to draw people to himself, to give them the hope that they need, the life and flourishing that they were created for. And see, this is where we are different from God. When we receive glory, we are like glory cul-de-sacs or glory hogs, right? So um, I live on a dead end uh, just down the street, and, and it's fantastic uh, to be on a dead end because when a car drives down our street, it's one of two things. Someone coming to our house 
or a lost Uber driver. And those are the only two people that come down our street. And uh, so when it's not someone we know, it's really actually kind of fun to watch them because we don't live on a cul-de-sac, it's just dead ends and, and kind of without warning. And so um, a lot of those Uber drivers uh, uh, will get to the end, realize their mistake, and then not really have anywhere to go. And so then kind of do an Austin Powers-esque 30-point turn to get out uh, the other direction. Some brave souls back up the entire way, uh, but not many. They all first try the, the turnaround. It's foolish. But that's kind of an illustration of the way in which we deal with glory. Glory tends to terminate on us. We receive the glory, we bask in the glory, we're thankful for the glory, we take the glory, we live in a moment of glory, we live for glory, but glory then doesn't become this reciprocal act of blessing to other people the way it does for God. So God is the only one who can demand glory because he knows that the more he is known, the more people benefits because knowing and loving God is the thing that every single person was created for. So he knows if I, if I tell people to glorify me and they do, the effect of me being glorified is the greater good of all of the rest of the people. So it, it reciprocates. The glory to God always results in a blessing to us. So here's what that means for us here at Icon, in part. Our focus in worship in teaching and discipleship is to make God known because he is the great hope of the world and to make him known above all else because there, there are a lot of goals that we could try to be accomplishing here in this moment and there is, there's kind of always a temptation in church to tailor messages to meet different desires or different needs and so our commitment from the very beginning to, uh, of loving God is to say, we believe that no matter what you think you need, no matter what it is you want out of what's happening here, out of teaching moments, out of all the different things that we do, we know that the thing you need the most is to know and love God. That's what you need most. So when you come here to worship, you will hear about God. You will hear songs that glorify God so that you will know God. We will not sing a lot of songs that are mostly about you or me because the last thing any of us need is more conversation about you or me because we are not our own hope. God is the great hope of the world. And so we come and we sing and we learn and we teach about God. That's number one. Number two, seeking the kingdom. When we talk about seeking the kingdom, we mean this. We believe that God created the world to, to be a certain way, to, to function in particular ways for relationship, work, ethics, parenting, speech, to, to work in certain ways, ways that contribute to the flourishing of the whole world. That when God created all things, he created all things with a plan. And that what he created was good, in fact, he calls it very good, and that that was the plan. That there was a way that all of this was supposed to work together, a way in which we were supposed to talk to each other and be with each other and work together. All of the things that God created, he created to work together kind of like a puzzle. 
And sin breaks the puzzle. Okay, and I like the puzzle illustration because I hate puzzles. My wife loves doing puzzles. I hate doing puzzles. It was together at one point. You broke it on purpose. We, we just had it together, and you broke it to put it back together. It makes no sense. And on the box, there's a picture of it. I know what it's going to look like. There's no, I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's just tedious beyond. I, okay, we're not doing that. Seeking the kingdom is the act of putting the puzzle back together. From what I can tell, the best, uh, the best thing about puzzles is that I can use it as an illustration. Okay, so here's what you have to do. And I, I always do one piece of a puzzle just so I can take credit for the puzzle. And that's it. I'm that guy. And, and so what I, from what I can tell, the, point, the, the process of putting a puzzle together is people sitting, not really talking to each other, looking down at a mess looking for an odd shape or a half a color or something, looking to recognize the part that this thing plays in the whole, okay? And so there's a process of understanding what you're looking for and then finding what you're looking for and then putting that thing in its proper place. That, that, as far as I can tell, it's that a thousand times, right? Uh, it's, it's awful. Okay. This is not unlike what we are talking about when we talk about seeking the kingdom. That we would, as we go throughout our day and go throughout our lives, that we would see things that happen in our workplace, that we would see things that happen in our home, and that we would recognize that's a picture of what God's intention in creation was. I recognize that. The way that person talked to that person, that's how it was supposed to be. That interaction, it was gracious and sacrificial and loving and there was partnership there that we would be able to recognize, yeah, that is an example of God's creation. And then there would be other times where we would go throughout our lives and we would see something broken and we would go, no, 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 that, that puzzle piece is in the wrong place and it's possible that that piece doesn't even belong to this puzzle at all. But it's certainly in the wrong place. It's trying to get jammed into the wrong, I've done this more than once, seeing the right color and trying to jam the wrong shape into the wrong spot because I could force it in, I think. But this, this idea of saying like, okay, there are some things in our, in our lives that we can go, yeah, that's, that's good in the way God created it to be. And there's others that we'd be able to recognize and go, no, that's not how God created it to be. And it needs to be changed. It needs to be shifted. It needs to be uh, adjusted. It needs to fit the puzzle. And so when we talk about seeking the kingdom, we're really talking about being able to, one, kind of navigate our lives with a theological lens, to be able to understand God's intention in creation, the way in which God's intention was broken, and then what redemption looks like in these moments, and then what the hope of restoration will be. But it's more than that, right? So verse 23, Paul says this, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So Paul has kind of two ways of thinking about the world here. First, we are free to do whatever we want, right? All things are lawful. This was, it seems as if this was a saying in Corinth that these Jews who had been saved out of Judaism, which was very legalistic, now are experiencing grace and they're little, they've coined this phrase, hey, all things are lawful now. 
And Paul goes, yeah, okay, so there is one way of seeing the world in which all things are lawful and we're free to do whatever we want. And, and to a degree, like, this is true, right? Like, you can do whatever you want. You have a lot of choices to make. We hear us all the time, you do you, right? You be you, which, which actually is implying you define you, right? Because if we're, if we're thinking well about the decisions that we're making, our, we should have two reference points in mind, right? What we were made for and what we we're aiming for. And that all of the decisions we make, all of the individual decisions should kind of line up with those two tension points of what we were made for, where we began, and, and what we're headed to. And so he then follows up with this kind of second idea, says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And the Greek word he uses there for build, for build is the word oikodomeo. And that just simply means like to build a thing, to build a structure, to make something. And so what Paul is kind of hinting at here is that everything we do, everything we say, every thought that we have is a brick that we are using to build a life. We're building. With everything we say and everything we do, every decision we make, every direction we go, we're building. And every, every one of those moments that God has given us, he's handed us the brick of a new day and said, okay, what are you going to build? And we have the freedom to build whatever it is that we want. But as Christians, we have been given architectural plans. We have been told who we are. We've been given the plans kind of laid out to go, okay, you've got this brick of your words and we want to lay it on the foundation of grace and peace. You've been given this, this brick of your skills or your uh, abilities or your time or all of these resources we've been given and then God goes, here, here's the brick and I'm telling you where it goes. What are you building? What are you going to build? We have un, uh, an unimaginable amount of resources in our lives today, especially those of us here in this room relative to the history of the world have an unimaginable amount of resources. And God has given us these bricks going, what are you going to build? What are you already building? And does it fall in line with the architectural plans that God has given us? Um, Emily and I uh, put up shelves yesterday Friday in our laundry room and it went like it normally does which is uh, she makes the plan maps it all out decides where everything's supposed to go points and I drill that's kind of how it goes and it used to be harder than that I used to think that I could do things I'm not that foolish anymore I've grown and I've realized I can't do anything I can only drill the things and when she marks the holes and points and I just do that and, and I'm, I'm the muscle in this situation and, and, and not always even that. And, um, and so I've learned to not ask questions. I've, I've learned because I'm wrong, whatever it is. And, uh, and so I just, I just do what I'm told and, and you know what? It works because the architect has made a plan laid it all out, I know where the brick's supposed to go, I put it where it goes, and I have learned over time to trust her. 
Because there was a day where I didn't trust her and I trusted myself to be able to define the plans and decide where the bricks were supposed to go to not just be me and you do you and all of that, but to actually define who I am and what I am. And this, this idea on the micro building shelves is true on the macro that at the, at the foundation of all of this, if we do not trust the architect to decide what it is we're building and how, we will just build our own thing our own way. But the truth of it is that as we seek the kingdom, that, that part of that is us to be able to go to identify what is going on around me, what is good and what is broken and what is God's intention and what is not God's intention and to be able to place the bricks where they're supposed to go according to the plan that he's given us. We've been given a vision for flourishing in Christ. Paul says so in chapter 11 verse 1. He tells the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's bold. That's bold of Paul to say, imitate me. I don't know that I would be that bold to say imitate me, but you'll notice that he quickly deflects and is not exactly saying like, hey, be exactly like me, do exactly what I do, except insofar as I'm just trying to do what this guy does. So if it's easier for you because you can't see Jesus and follow Jesus and be around Jesus and talk to Jesus in kind of corporeal ways, that you can at least do that with me. You can be in my house and see the way that I am trying to follow Jesus. We have a model. We have an example. We have a vision for human flourishing. We believe that Jesus was the true, full human. And God, yes, but fully human and walked out this kind of fully architected plan for us. So in very simple terms, to seek the kingdom means one, figure out what Jesus did, and two, do that. Do that. And for us here at ICON, specifically how we will work this out is um, in our forthcoming ICON group. So this fall, we'll launch ICON groups, which will just be a kind of a smaller group of guys and men and women to be able to walk together, to figure out together what does it mean to follow Jesus and in very specific and practical ways that most of us, I, I know I can speak for myself, never, even though I grew up in the church, never had someone come alongside me and go, hey, I'm just getting... Can I just, can you imitate me as I follow, as I imitate Christ? Will you, just, will you just let me pour my life into you so that we can both kind of get, become more like Jesus together? And so we want to create the space that I, I feel like I never had, create the space that I feel like many of us never had to be able to have people in our lives to go, hey, let's be serious about following Jesus together. Let's be serious about actually understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what he taught and what it means to live, and then let's do it. Let's do it together. So that's coming up this fall. Number three, we're committed to serving the common good. For too long, Christians have thought of their engagement with the world strictly in terms of kind of a narrow vision of evangelism. Now, evangelism is absolutely essential. The Great Commission, that is our marching order. The problem is not with evangelism. Our, our mistake is that we have had a truncated view of what evangelism is and what it means. 
growing up, evangelism was, speak, was simply speaking words about Jesus to people who didn't know Jesus. That's it. That's what evangelism was. And we got good at it. We had tracks, we had questionnaires, we had strategies, we had banana metaphors, we invented the Jesus juke. It was a wild time. And, and, and the problem with all of that wasn't with the delivery methods themselves. A, a well-executed Jesus juke can be surprisingly effective. And, and the, the, do you know what a Jesus juke is? Do we, okay, you guys gotta know. You guys, a Jesus juke is when you turn any situation into an opportunity to talk about Jesus, right? Like, so uh, imagine like you're at dinner with some friends who are not Christian and they offer you a glass of wine and you go, oh, this is good wine. You know who else makes good wine? <laughs> My friend Jesus. That's a Jesus juke and they're great to make fun of, not to actually do, okay? The problem wasn't delivery. The problem wasn't even the heart behind it. It's become very popular to say evangelism is not okay or evangelism is offensive. We should never try to convince other people to believe what we believe. And if anyone ever says that to you, just remind them that they are evangelizing you to their point in that very moment. It's foolishness. And besides, like, if, if any of this is true, right, like, if, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, then if we are not telling people about it, we kind of hate them. Like, if this is, if this is their only hope, then, and, and everything else leads to death, then we kind of just, at, at best, don't care about them. At worst, hate them if we are not going to share this message with them. So it's not, about, it's not about the heart behind evangelism. It's not about the process of evangelism. The problem is that we thought that this kind of verbal communication was evangelism. And it was all that evangelism was. And, and so other things like worship and caring for the poor and personal discipleship and political and social action all of it was separated from evangelism and called something else. And it was called something else to the detriment of everything. Like the negative impact of that flowed in all, of, all directions. It didn't just hurt evangelism. Evangelism suffered because it became completely verbal and rational and overly focused on people making decisions for Christ. Worship suffered because it cared too much about what non-Christians thought and not enough about what they needed. Discipleship suffered because it was boiled down to ethics and purity promises. Social and political action suffered because when separated from its gospel motivations, becomes either virtue signaling or more, a more culturally acceptable version of Christianity. Essentially Christianity without the weird stuff. And it all suffers. All of those things suffer when we pull them apart. Now, we believe that the hope of the world is Jesus. That's what we believe. We believe that Jesus created all things with a plan, a purpose for which they were created, that everything has its own telos, this Greek word for purpose, that it all has its own telos. We believe that all people, regardless of their faith, regardless of their convictions, will flourish to the degree that they live in line with their telos. Right, so follow me on this, that we don't believe that someone has to be a Christian in terms of heart conviction in order to benefit if they walk in the ways of Jesus. Like that a, a, a complete atheist will flourish more if they are honest than if they are dishonest. 
That there is just kind of a way that the world is supposed to function together. One of my favorite theologians calls it the grain of the universe. Kind of the way in which the, the universe moves. And if we can live in line with the grain of the universe, that we will flourish. So that's true. Someone doesn't have to become a Christian in order to grow in their human flourishing. And so it's a mistake of ours to reduce down the work of the church to simply evangelism. This is not the case. That we are also to walk out justice and walk out care for the poor and walk out all of the mercy and all of the grace and all of the ways in which the world is supposed to be. That we should care deeply for the way that corporations function because they are made by God. We should care deeply about all of the different parts of our world because they are all gods given to us to care for. So I started by, by emphasizing how important evangelism is because I don't want anybody to, to walk out of here thinking, oh, we're just going to go serve the poor and it's not evangelism. No, you're missing the whole point. The point is that is evangelism. It is demonstrating the goodness of God in a practical way, saying to people in our lives and in our world, this is not the way it's supposed to be because a good God created it to be better than it is. In fact, Paul says the very thing in verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. I do not seek... I, uh, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever you drink, whatever you eat, do it all to the glory of God. Because if we can glorify God and demonstrate his kingdom, then people will come to saving faith in Jesus. This is the magic of it. Like, it all fits together. It's this holistic vision that God has for his people that we are just trying to live out by loving the king, seeking the kingdom, and serving the common good. It all goes together. These are not three different endeavors that are disconnected from each other. But when we love God and, and glorify him in the way that we live and act, the very act of doing that is to live in line with his kingdom vision. And living in line with his kingdom vision demonstrates to the people around us who he is and how he created the world to be, which then glorifies him so that people can know him and love him and be who they were made to be. It all fits together. And it was all demonstrated to us in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He made known the unconditional sacrificial love of God and God's great desire to be in right relationship with us by coming to earth to fully live out what it means to be human, seek the kingdom, and then giving himself away for our sake, for our good. This is our path, and the only way we can walk it is first by acknowledging that he walked it for us. Because hear this, the, the so what on a message like this cannot be, Jesus was perfect, go and do likewise. That's, that's death for all of us. Because we will, before we even get out the door, we will fail to be like Jesus. The very act of thinking we could be like Jesus fails to be like Jesus. 
So it, the, the gospel is this confounding, cyclical, paradoxical, tension-filled idea that we are called to be image bearers of God, that we are to reflect who God is to the world around us by loving God, by seeking his kingdom, by serving the common good, and yet we never will and we never have, and so God did it himself so that we can. I mean, did you catch that? We, we need to, but we can't, so he did because we can't, but now we can because he did, right? It makes no sense. It makes no sense on paper. It's not a thing we can, we can strategize and put the thing together for. Why? Why did God design it this way? Because what does he want from us most of all? Our purity, class, our perfection? Man, this is good. What other questions can I ask? <laughs> no, he wants us. He wants relationship. He wants to be back in the garden with us. That's what God wants most of all. He wants to be back in the garden with us. That's the kind of relationship that he wants. And he has promised us that there will be a garden again. And until that day, he has created this, this chaotic crazy interconnected universe that constantly tells us we can't and we're not enough and we'll never be what we're made to be but we were made to be something amazing but we'll never be it and our only hope is Jesus and it will be again one day but it never will be and it's just this constant thing that puts us in a in an unending posture of need for him if he had stopped if he'd stopped at the Ten Commandments, we would never have needed God. We would never have needed Jesus. We would never have needed anything but him. And he would stand in heaven with the, with the checkboard and go, every time you knock off one of these things, you're closer to me. And every time you fail, you're further away from me. And I'm just watching and waiting. And at the end of the day, heaven would have been real empty. Because that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm trying to do. That's not the point of this thing. I want you. I want to be back in the garden. And we will be someday. Not because we will figure out how to obey. But because he did obey on our behalf. And we throw ourselves on his mercy. Asking him to make us into the kinds of people that can live out just a little bit closer. And a little bit closer. And a little bit closer to what he's made us to be. Amen. And that's our hope. To be a church that over the next, I don't know, 300 years gets a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer and that the only way we'll ever do that is by continually repenting and coming back and reminding ourselves of our great need in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. The good news is that you made us to need you. We've needed you before sin entered the world. We've needed you from the very moment we were an idea in your brain. We needed you. You made us to need you. Because you want to be with us. What an absolutely mind-blowing idea that the God of the universe, the creator of life and death, wants to be with us. Lord, every day that we wake up and don't take advantage of that is a day wasted. 
Lord, may we wake up with a joyful expectation that we would be with you that day. That we would know you and love you and glorify you. That we would see the world through your eyes, see your intention, see your craftsmanship in all of the people and things around us. Lord, that we would be able to recognize the counterfeits, the lies, the things that are not you, things that have been twisted and turned. That our response would be a, 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 a reminder of our need, hope in what you accomplished on the cross. Lord, I pray that Icon would be a church that never stops depending on you, never stops preaching the gospel of our great need for you. And Lord, that you would do with us whatever you will, that you would use us in whatever ways you have desired. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We'll uh, take a question or two here before we transition. Uh, if you're new, we, we do uh, Q&A just about every week. Uh, it's a chance for uh, clarification and follow-up questions and uh, me to keep talking, which I know you guys have wanted. Uh, so, question. What happens when we mess up the build? If we misplace a brick and then stack so many so high that are wrong, what then? Man, that's such a great question. Um, two things, two thoughts on that. Um, I had a youth pastor when I was in high school use this illustration. I was probably 15 when he used it, and, and I'll probably never forget it. Um, but he, he, he said that when we're, when we're walking, no matter what direction we're walking, and uh, especially when we're walking away from God, that we can walk as far and as fast and, and, and as long as we want to uh, away from God, but the journey back is just this. Like no matter how many miles we've walked this way or run or sprinted or flown this way, that no matter where we are, the moment we turn, redemption is there, grace is there. So the good news of the gospel is that you are not far from God. No matter how far you've run, no matter how long, no matter, you are not far from God. God is near to you. And that's, that's the good news, that you don't have to go back that God is near to you no matter how far away you have tried to run. That's one. Two is, and, and I've, I've used this illustration before because I only have like eight of them, and so I just have to keep using them. But um, uh, I, I got in, in college, I, uh, I got stabbed. This is a big fight. Uh, it was not a big deal. Um, I was moving, actually, and uh, like a college kid, just pulled my uh, silverware drawer out, out and, uh, and put it in my car, and I came to a stop with it and pulled my car out of gear, and a knife came up while I was pulling back and stabbed me in the tricep. It went in super deep, like probably that far, and um, uh, so I, I was rushed to the hospital, uh, and... Uh, and and, and, you know, came in, I'm like, and I told the lady, I was like, I got stabbed. And, and what I love about hospital staff is that they are not impressed. And so I just remember this lady, I came in, I was like, oh, I got stabbed with a knife. And she looked at me and she goes, you look fine, go over there. And they had me sit down. And I'm like, no, but like, 
like, in, like stabbed, stabbed. Anyway, so I, I went in to the doctor and, um, and he looked at it and, and he's like, stabbed? Is that what we're calling this? And, uh, and, and he said, he was describing how, uh, how it would get healed and he said, um, what we have to do is we gotta put this, uh, this like kind of uh, cotton thing or whatever it was, I don't know, uh, in, all the way into uh, the wound. But before we do that, we have to actually cut into the wound a little bit deeper than the knife went. Um, and so, you know, it had gone about a quarter inch. And so it was going a, another 16th or something like that. And I thought, oh, so now is it stabbed that you're cutting deeper? And uh, he, said, he said, what we have to do is we have to go to the deepest part of the wound and let it heal from the deepest part out. Uh, because two things can happen. One, if we don't go deep enough, then there could be bacteria from the end of that knife that could get into, the, you know, uh, into your body and then uh, I cut my arm off is basically how that story ends. And, uh, and so then we've got we've to heal it on the way out because if it heals, you know, there's this uh, big gash. And if we heal it like that, then there's this pocket where the, all the bacteria can breed. So it's got to heal like this way. And there was a couple things that I took away from that. One, it's probably the only stabbing story that I'll ever get to tell, so I need to tell it a lot. Two is that um, repentance is going to the deepest part of the sin and working your way back out from there. That the best kind of repentance, the only repentance that's sure to get, get it all out and not leave any pockets of unrepented sin is, this, is the kind of repentance that, that is the worst version of the story, of a mentor that always tells me, if you're telling a story, always tell the worst version of it because that's the truest and most honest version. And so no matter where, to get back to the question, no matter where that brick was laid, repent all the way back down to that brick. I don't care if there are a million bricks of life built on top of it, go back down to that brick and maybe even one brick below it because you might be underestimating which brick was the first one that went wrong. And go back down to that brick and you're gonna find that as you dig down further and further and further and further and further, not that God's gonna meet you there in your sin, that he has been there the whole time waiting for you to give you the grace that is awaiting you at that brick. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. Not that Jesus follows you in your repentance, that Jesus knows the very worst thing about you, that that's what hung him on the cross, and he has been waiting for you to meet his grace there. And the only thing that is stopping his grace from being applied in a redemptive, healing way to that misplaced brick is your unwillingness to identify it as such. And so no matter where that thing is, go back down there and repent. And I tell you, it's going to have consequences. It's going to have very real consequences that are part of building a life on a misplaced brick. That's real. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It's going to have ramifications for you, and it's worth it. No matter the ramifications, it's worth it. Because God's grace will meet you in it and it will be transformative. I think we could probably go around the room and tell stories of moments in our lives that we would never want to have happen again that we would also not change for the world because of its transformative power over us. So find that brick, repent of it, root it out, and rebuild on top of a rightly placed brick. And if there are specific 
things that are tied to that that you want more help with, and come talk to me. I would love to talk to you more specifically about those things.